Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Jen Sorensen. Jen is an award-winning political cartoonist whose work can be seen at magazines, newspapers, and websites, including her own. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2017. She's a 1996 graduate of the University of Virginia. Hi, Jen. Hi, Mark. Can you fill us in on your journalism origin story? Sure, sure. Well, you know, as a kid, that's mostly what I did all the time, just draw comics and you know, I read a lot of Med Magazine, and I guess as I got older, read a lot of underground comics. And so I think that when I started out, I wasn't so political. I was a little more humor-oriented. And the thing that actually got me on the a more journalistic path, I would say, was a combination of two things. One is that all weeklies were kind of a a booming industry at the time. So there seemed to be some opportunities in the alt-weekly newspapers. And secondly, I would say the 2000 election and the events just surrounding 9-11 and then the Iraq war, all of that pushed me in a much more political direction. And uh, although I would hesitate to call myself a journalist exactly, I feel like I'm a little more journalism adjacent, at least when I'm doing opinion cartoons, I feel like I'm relying on the work of other journalists most of the time and trying to follow journalistic ethics. But it's like, an, you know, an op-ed columnist. I, I guess it's it's a form of journalism or it's, it's journalism adjacent. I, I think you're commenting on the times, essentially, just as a columnist would. Was there anything in your upbringing or heritage that lent itself to telling stories through artwork? Is there any family history there or anything like that? You know, my mother taught second grade and she drew a lot of artwork. She created a lot of artwork for her classroom. And so, uh, you know, I, I didn't, you know, come from a line of artists or anything, but I remember I, helping my mother out with some of her classroom artwork. And then my parents just bought me a lot of comic books, which I mean, I think that was the real, <laughs> that was the real culprit right there. Were there any prominent early journalistic or artwork influences for you? Probably, well, in terms of journalism or simply cartoons? I, well, I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of, of even something like Mad Magazine, were you influenced oh, by, yeah. by Dave Barry or Al Jaffe or any of those people? Right. Well, certainly, yes. And, you know, Mad actually was political in a way. I mean, there was a lot of political and social commentary in Mad Magazine. And then also when I was in college, I wrote my senior thesis on the politics of women's underground comics. And that also, you know, was def was pushing myself in a little more, you know, maybe not not the direction of headline news, but in a more political direction. Well, I guess that is the thing that, I guess writing that thesis about the women's underground comics of like the 70s and 80s, that's the thing that really pushed me towards becoming a cartoonist professionally and not just going to grad school for anthropology, which was what I was, I was planning to do. How did you develop your style and, and kind of like what did it look like in the beginning? So I guess I've always had a fairly cartoony style that probably 
you know, goes all the way back to just the comics I read as a kid, like, you know, like Calvin and Hobbes and even probably early, you know, Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge, Scrooge comics probably uh, played into it. But then later on, I would say some of the alt-weekly comics were an influence. You know, you have There's Tom Tomorrow, Life in Hell. I really, I liked Roz Chast, even though I guess visually maybe my style is a little different. You know, I, I think also Robert Crumb was was probably an influence in college. Probably, I'm sure like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm still ripping off Crumb in subtle ways. You, you draw in a multi-panel style. How did you develop that and why do you prefer that? Once again, this is, you know, my format is drawn from the tradition of the alt-weekly comics, which were, you know, really big in the 90s. And, and so most of those cartoons are multi-panel. And, but the thing, the reason I prefer that is because I would find it, I find it very difficult to say something complex in a single panel. And, you know, some cartoonists are really good at it. It's amazing. I think it's so hard to, to, to say much, <laughs> you know, or, or, you, you know, to really make a statement in that, that format, it's kind of limiting. I like being able to talk about issues that maybe, maybe people haven't heard about and have a setup panel where you kind of just introduce the topic and say, hey, this is this story, you know, in case you haven't heard about it, this is in the news, and then riff on it for a few panels. And so I like the freedom that the multi-panel format gives me to do that. So can you explain where your work is frequently seen at this point? So, right, yeah, these days, probably the biggest outlets are the, uh, you know, the online places like the Nib, Daily Kos. I'm in politi- the Politico cartoon carousel fairly often. I Still, I'm fortunate to appear in a number of alt-weekly newspapers around the country. That number has been shrinking, but, you know, there's there's still some that remain independent and still, you know, still run comics. And so, and those are scattered around the, around the country, basically. And just as examples of that are things like, well, back in the day, it was the Village Voice would, would be known as an right. alt-weekly. And Charlottesville Weekly, is that an example of another? Yeah, yeah. So that was my first weekly, the first association of alternative newspapers newspaper that I appeared in and so Seville Weekly and that was when I was living in Charlottesville they were my first I'd say my first real alt-weekly client that had been in a couple publications before then and they yeah they certainly helped get the ball rolling I guess it was around 2002 I think that I started running there and knock on wood I'm still I'm still published there today. Other papers like the Austin Chronicle and Seven Days in Vermont, uh, papers papers like that around the country. We typically talk to reporters about their stories, but in this case, we're going to talk to you about uh, your cartoons. And you tend to focus, for the most part, on national issues. We'll look at a few. Your, one of your more recent ones is called, at least in, in one place, it was called Quackery Quotas. It's a four-panel strip about affirmative action and Republican cries of unfair systems that don't let them promote crazy things like 
eugenics, client science, skepticism, but they finally got something with Ron DeSantis and the teaching of benefits to slavery in Florida. How did you come up with an idea for something like that? Yeah, I think I've been wanting to do something for a while about this concept of ideological diversity that sounds very well-meaning, I think, you know, because I think in a good faith model of learning, you you do want a healthy debate between two sides that are, you know, are being, you know, being truthful and honest. But I, you know, obviously it's now just being used to advance quackery, as we see in in Florida with DeSantis. And so that seemed like an opening for me to talk about that subject. And and also coming on the heels of the Supreme Court decision eliminating affirmative action. You know, I, I would put these two things together. I'm like, well, you know, they're, they're really they're tr- trying to uh, make this argument for diversity at the same time that they are you know, making the argument against it. And so that's, that's I think, what formed the basis of, of that cartoon. How long does it take you to do something like that from start of the idea to finished uh, work? So the it depends. And the, and the the biggest variable is basically deciding on a topic and coming up with an idea. And I mean, that can take, you know, a, a day or two, you know, lots of wasted time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> scrolling, scrolling so, on social media. Um, but I guess once I kind of know what I'm doing, you know, again, the writing process varies, but I, no, I, in a way, I think they actually take a, a little longer than they used to. But, I, but let's say, let's say, like six hours of writing and working it out, and then maybe six hours of drawing, something like that. Uh, uh, what's the process as far as the drawing goes? So these days, I I work digitally. I draw on an iPad, and so I. I had a little template already, already to go with the panel borders. And then I, I do a pencil layer, I ink it on the iPad and I then transfer things into Photoshop to finish it up and, and add text, which is, yeah, very different from how I used to do it. Even a few years ago, which was just, you know, crystal board and ink. Yeah. I was going to ask what, like, what, what are, what, what was that like? You know, I mean, I still kind of misdrawing on paper. I mean, it, it, and a lot of cartoonists will probably tell you that it just feels a little more natural. I think I, I did just start to get really impatient at how slow that process was and just, you know, having to like erase your pencils and, you know, it's just easier to make corrections. And, and now I don't know what I would do without an undo function. You're, you're like, you know, <laughs> on, <laughs> on, uh, on the, I guess it's appropriate on the iPad. And so um, it, that that ruins you, I think. Once once you have the undo function and you know multiple levels of undo, <laughs> you're sure. you're spoiled is, for life. Is there a difference in terms of like the level of detail or the level of work, or is it the same kind of thing? You, oh, you mean iPad versus, versus yeah, digital yeah. versus paper? You know, I, I found that. I think the work on the iPad looks maybe a little cleaner, which in in some ways I like. In some ways, I think it loses just a little bit of that organic imperfection that, that you get with paper. So, you know, it's a, 
my more recent work is just, it looks maybe slightly more minimalist than my previous work, but that could also just be a function of like, become just trying to be a little more efficient. Gotcha. <laughs> and, and simplicity is actually a really helpful thing. I, you know, you really uh, spent a lot of time just winnowing the cartoon down so that it's as simple as possible. Cause that, that's actually, you know, like Charles Schultz was a master of that. I have come, I, I reread some of those Peanuts books during the worst part of the pandemic. They, they were like comfort food. And mm -hmm. I was just like, this is just amazing. I mean, he really was the best. And uh, revisiting that work as an adult, I think is really interesting because you, you even pick up on subtleties that maybe when you're a kid, you're not picking up on, but they're very sophisticated. I've, I've been to the Schultz Museum and I've met Jeannie Schultz on oh, wow. at least a couple occasions. And she I just want to say she's been super nice and and supportive. The wow. few times I've I've interacted with her, like I, I'm I'm a big fan. That's <laughs> she, fantastic. She's, she's great. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, let's go back to your 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 work here. I'm looking at your Pulitzer portfolio. You were nominated on the strength of a lot of cartoons related to the 2016 presidential election. There's one comparing each of the candidates to Elvis Presley, Bernie Sanders gyrating his elbows instead of his pelvis. You did a panel illustration of a stage with all the different people supporting Hillary behind her, what they represented, climate change, dreamers, LGBTQ, a man in a baseball cap just off the stage saying he doesn't like her. You have a four-panel portrayal of the weirdness of a Trump-supporting union member, and you had another on how the media would have covered climate change if it had covered it like it covered Hillary's emails. That's a lot. What was covering that election like? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of ground to cover there. I guess in a nutshell, it, it was kind of unpleasant and stressful. And I, I went to the Democratic National Convention in 2016. And I, I think I came home with a really bad feeling after that. I guess, you know, where I'm coming from is, you know, I, I think... You know, I would consider myself, you know, uh, you know, more progressive in terms of my value, uh, more progressive than Hillary's record in, in the Senate. And I think, you know, it's possibly, it's possible that in retrospect, a, you know, there would have been a candidate that was been, people uh, would have been more enthusiastic about. But uh, I think at the time, it was just clear to me that Trump was such a danger to the nation and that, you know, to me, it was all about the Supreme Court. I was very, very worried about that. I think people still underestimate some of the sexist double standards that were applied to Hillary, especially, I mean, now now we look at the, the I mean, the email scandal is just a complete joke compared to what we're going through now with the Trump indictments. <laughs> so I just rem remember, remember that year as being really kind of stressful and unpleasant in terms of, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm happy with some of the cartoons I got out of it, but it was, it was a hard time. What's an ideal scenario for you in terms of, of a new cycle that you would like to kind of cover? Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think, and I'm not sure we're ever going to go back to this, but actually having some real substantive debate on issues rather than 
just trying to shoot down lies. I mean, it's, it, you know, things have gotten so ridiculous that there's almost nothing to argue against because it's just all so absurd and extreme and it makes it very hard to exaggerate. And so sometimes I find myself just, just stating what's happening and that's kind of the, the gag. It's just like, it speaks for itself. You can't even exaggerate on it. And so it would be nice to go back to a, a more normal situation where you're actually just debating from the same reality, the same plane of reality. <laughs> you know? Well, what was, what was cartooning like in the, I don't know, I guess the, in the Bush years? Well, you know, that felt awful too. <laughs> <laughs> However, okay. I think there there was a more shared sense of reality and people consuming the same media. And I, I feel like the you know pro progressives weren't quite as fragmented then. Basically, you know, a lot of people were more on the same page. At least I, I think among my my readership, and so you know, I, like. I, in a way, I sort of look back fondly on those years. I mean, they were terrible, but uh, I do feel like I really, there was a lot of momentum then. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I like, I like a lot of the cartoons I did during those years. I'm, you know, some of them. <laughs> I'm, I'm my own worst critic, really, but. <laughs> okay. Well, what is it like looking at them after the, at them after the fact? When I first do a cartoon, I almost, I, I think I've just, I've spent so much time with it. I can't even evaluate it and I don't even want to look at it. But then like maybe a few years later, I'll look back and, and then I can appreciate them. Or sometimes I just cringe, but I'm, I think a better judge of the work many years later <laughs> when I, when I've moved on to other things and my mind is cleared a little bit. So that's a common bond then between the writer and the and the cartoonist, I think. Uh, Probably, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for, for sure. Did you ever hear from anyone that you drew about? You know, I, I was trying to, yeah, I, I have heard from various, like, important and sort of famous people that gives me the sense that, like, the cartoon is out there and being seen. Uh, you know, people have ordered prints and things. I... I I don't think I have specifically heard from someone that I drew, but it is weird because like every so often I'll just hear from someone who's like, well, you know, I, I don't know, like, how did you see it? Like, I, I, and I, I guess it's strange because in some ways I feel very marginalized from mainstream publications, mainstream newspapers. And I'm, I mean, always just feeling like I'm, I'm just in all these alternative and, and political publications. And yet Although I guess it does run in Politico. Politico would be a big exception there. And yet I just, you know, it, it's, I guess the internet, you know, <laughs> is sort of it miraculous. And, and, and I do get the sense that the work is being seen. Yeah, my, my husband has a joke. He says, my, my cartoons are like, like porn. Like no one wants to admit it, but everyone's reading them. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of reader reaction do you, do you get? I would say it's overwhelmingly positive. I have certainly had my share of hate mail and just weird emails over the years. But in general, I, I think I've been sort of lucky in that department because 
most, you know, my work just appears on, on these, you know, generally progressive websites and, you know, publications. And so that's mostly who's seeing it. So yeah, I, I, I certainly, I, I would say it, the reader feedback has, has actually been very encouraging and motivating for me. Cool. So we're speaking at a time where, which is quite frankly, bad for political cartoonists. Three Pulitzer winners, Jack Oman of the Sacramento Bee, Joel Pett of the Lexington Herald Leader, and Kevin Sires of the Charlotte Observer were all let go by the McClatchy Publishing Company in the same day. What's the current state of the industry for you? Oh, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I, I think that what we've seen in the past few years is a, a real movement away from political cartoons by the biggest news institutions. You know, you've seen the the Pulitzers basically dropped the category or kind of expanded it to, what is it? It's Data reporters? Illustrated reporting or something. Yeah. And, and so, so you still get some political cartoonists as finalists, but I, th I think it's kind of amazing that since 2017, I believe you've, there's only been one actual like standalone editorial cartoonist who's won. And I, that was, I believe, Darren Bell in 2019. And I mean, there, there have been sort of, you know, graphic journalism and, and, you know, more like data journalism and things like that that have won. But I'm like, you know, when you consider what has happened politically since 2017, I mean, I, I, I took that as a very bad sign, especially the year that they declared no winner, which was, I believe, 2020 is, yeah, based on the cartoons published in 2020, which, you know, three excellent finalists, they opted to name no winner that year. I was like, you know, I think democracy, this is a really bad sign. Democracy is doomed. <laughs> okay. So, and, and moving on to more, more recent subjects that you, that you mentioned. So, so we had the, this, this mass layoff of, you know, three Pulitzer prize winning cartoonists who are all my friends. And that was a, you know, corporate decision. And I think they just, they let them go very abruptly with no warning. And then you also see at the same time, almost at the same moment, we've seen the Washington Post has started running gag cartoons that aren't political at all. I mean, I believe they, they still are running some political cartoons, but I mean, you get this overwhelming sense of, you know, at the, at the highest levels, I would say both, both probably the you know, the private equity firms that own the newspapers and, you know, editors themselves, they, they don't, they've decided that, that they, they don't want these. I, I think they, they are scared that, that readers are going to be alienated and they, it's just easier for them to not have to deal with, with any negative feedback. And I think in some cases, people don't like the message of, you know, of, criticism of of the, of the right or or, or of the you know vast wealth inequality that we're seeing in in America and and around the world so personally to get, I just I think that this is a very bad sign for democracy in general 
the fact that you get these newspapers that are, they, they, they talk a good game about being like the marketplace of ideas and like criticizing anyone who might, there's a lot of criticism of like people online for, for, you know, weighing in on, on journalism, but I, I just, I find that sort of hypocritical because, because they're really like being cowardly. I would think too that like it bothers me because the attention span of the world citizen these days has eroded so much, but the attention span that is needed necessarily to absorb a particularly no, no offense to you, but a one panel or a, a shorter mm -hmm. political cartoon, the attention span is not long necessarily needed to be that long for that as opposed to reading an article and it's it's kind of disheartening that that that's not realized and that's that that's not put to good use somehow well, they, absolutely i i don't think reader enthusiasm has waned at, at all as far as i can tell and uh, and and also you are right that you know the single panel cartoons are uh, they're they're great for a quick read on social media and they they are great for short attention spans. That's one reason why I, I work so hard to make my cartoons as simple as possible. Because right, you know, I look at some of my earlier work. I'm like, this would not survive <laughs> today's shortened attention spans. It, it's sort of it's really sad. And I think that going forward, a lot of people are basically just relying on reader subscriptions, reader support, and freelance syndication and things like that but uh, it's clear that the the golden era of the staff cartoonist is over the, um just to educate us on the industry there is an organization there's the association of american editorial cartoonists what do they do so yeah it's a very old organization and i served as the president a couple of years ago it it's it's basically a it's 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 a professional association for all all the nations. Well, maybe not every every one, but but just the nation's political cartoonists. And I think for a long time, you know, I mean, it, it had much larger membership, is much you know, obviously better funded. And you know, these days, it is still a group of of colleagues and friends who meet once a year, like except during COVID. And uh, who, who I, you know, help each other out. And I, I guess where it can, the association tries to both defend cartoonists abroad who are being persecuted and make statements on, you know, when, when something like these, these layoffs happen, you know, it, it sadly, it seems no one is listening, but, you know, it's, it's still, I, I think, an important, uh, for, for those of us who have been in it for a while, it, it's just nice to have that that support from your colleagues and being able to talk to them and meet them every so often is important. How many female editorial cartoonists are there? How many, what's the percentage, just approximately, of minorities and uh, people that are, are I guess, non-white male? So it kind of, if you're just looking at full-time political cartoonists who support whose who, I guess primary source of income is political cartooning as far as I know I think it might just be Ann Telness and myself 
Uh, I know Signe Wilkinson was full-time. She retired uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, she's with the Philadelphia Inquirer. So I, 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 you know, I think if you expand that to include, you know, artists who are on the nib, people who maybe draw a cartoon a week or every other week, just like as kind of like one of their many pro projects, you know, in cartooning. And, and most people do have to like juggle multiple projects these days and cartooning is just one aspect of what they do. That number would probably expand to more like, I don't know, roughly maybe 10. I, you know, that's, that's a very rough estimate. Wow. Uh, 10 women. I mean, but then you also get just even more broadly, a lot of work that is political or making statements about, about gender or technology and, and, you know, and, and that can be certainly be considered political as well, if not in a necessarily like a regular format that's published somewhere. So kind of depends where you draw the line. Sorry. Well, as for pe people of color, I, I would say, again, I think maybe the percentage is kind of similar, uh, you know, and you did have Darren Bell win the Pulitzer a few years ago and you know, Lalo Alcaraz, who's one of, who's been a Pulitzer finalist twice, and Keith Knight. And I think you are certainly seeing a lot of other genres, such as graphic novels, young adult graphic novels, things like that, where you are seeing way much greater numbers of, of women and people of color. So in a sense, I, I think editorial cartooning is, is a little bit frozen now because there are no jobs. And so it's a little more frozen in time, I think, than some of these other, it, just in terms of making progress, it, you know, demographically, because there ha just haven't been that many opportunities for people. Okay, three things to wrap up. Uh, what's the best <laughs> thing about being uh, an editorial cartoonist? Well, uh, you know, in my case, I have almost complete creative freedom to do whatever I want without an editor most of the time. I mean, I, I actually, I do occasional commissioned work and you know and then that involves working with an editor and back and forth but i i just do whatever i want every week and that's it's kind of a luxury sure but <laughs> so, it's one that's been earned uh oh yeah it's 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 hard it's been hard yeah. <laughs> but all right but, and, uh, yeah. Go ahead. and what it, what is your how do you view your purpose going into the 2024 election well Again, I, I I have feelings of dread about that, but I, I do feel like I, you know, I, I pick up on news stories that maybe people haven't seen or cultural issues that can't be explored in easily in a, in a single panel cartoon. And I, I try to talk about these topics in a, just a slightly different way that's both hopefully amusing and maybe a little educational and informative. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would just try to amplify the truth and, and uh, hopefully, you know, I, I, I guess there's like a lot of younger readers who I, I, I think may, you know, it's like, I'm still, you, you can still reach people who are forming their opinions about the world and, and the, so there's a, there's some sense of purpose there in, in that you're getting people to think and you know it you're being heard hopefully and you have 
an excellence in terms of boiling something down to the simplest terms, as you said before, that would appeal to what you just said, someone that's younger, that's still mm -hmm. trying to formulate an opinion. This is, you're presenting things at their most, I don't want to say basic level, but you're presenting the basics of the story and you're laying out either the ridiculousness of something or why, you know, uh, you're laying out often the ridiculousness of something. And I think that, that like, as you were saying, I think your purpose seems to be uh, pretty strong. Oh, thank you. What I can say. <laughs> sure. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you and ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work and preferably someone you're not affiliated with? Yeah, so I guess when I look back at the sources of information for my own cartoons over the past year or two, there are two big newspapers that stand out, and that is The Guardian, which has been especially great on climate issues and, and also pollution issues. I think forever chemicals, you know, are a growing concern. And uh, so the Guardian's environmental coverage has been excellent. And then I would also salute ProPublica, who's just, they've been doing just amazing work, just investigative reporting on the Supreme Court and exposing all this corruption. And uh, I feel like both of those organizations have not lost their moral bearings and they're not just trying to appease both sides. Uh, they, you know, they really have, I, I think the most important, they, 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 they hew to like journalism's real purpose, you know, and, and they're, they're not just covering horse, you know, doing horse race coverage of the election and like saying, oh, well, this side thinks that and this side thinks, this so I don't know, <laughs> you know, like they're they're really addressing the important issues. Jen Sorensen, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your work. We'll certainly be following it. Thanks so much, Mark. I appreciate your having me on the show. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.